Welcome to the Harbor Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more information, visit us online at www.theharborli.com. So we are excited about this new series called Culture Killers. We're kind of uh, moving into the Halloween season and everyone's doing all of the scary stuff. And this isn't going to be scary, I promise. Um, but what we want to talk about today is, um, in, in the weeks to come, is uh, how important it is to build culture. And that there's always going to be things that come up against that to try to kill your culture. And when I think of um, what God is doing here at the harbor, it's so exciting because I will hear people in the business community, in the secular community, comment about what they've heard about this place. And, and people will say to them, uh, it's just a safe place. It's a place you can come to no matter what you're going through, and you're not going to be judged. You're going to be loved on. You're going to feel accepted. And you're going to hear um, God's Word. You're going to hear the truth of God's Word. And, um, and I love that. And that's a culture that we've created. If you're with us today for the first time, you know, hopefully when you got out of your car and you started coming in, people approached you, I hope, and just shook your hand and wanted to get to know you and encouraged you. And that's the culture that we work hard at establishing. Now, there's culture killers that come against that. There are times where maybe, maybe uh, we get so caught up with being comfortable that it's uncomfortable to, for me to go find someone that I've never met. I'd rather just talk to the people that I know. That's a culture killer. And so there's a lot of things like that that we want to touch on. Today I'm kind of laying the groundwork for the series, and I'm going to be um, sharing some things that you can apply to your life because your life has a culture as well. It's not just a church culture, but your life has a culture. You, your, your marriage, your family has a culture to it. Um, your job, your neighborhood, um, everything has a culture. And basically, culture is a set of ideas or beliefs or behaviors of a particular group of people. I am, I'm so sorry. I'm, it sounds like I'm eating marbles right now, but I have got a bad cough. And, and Jason up here saved my life and gave me some cough drops. So just bear with me. I'd swallow it, but I'd probably choke. But it's going to help me not to cough all over you. So culture. Um, who or what determines the culture of your life? That's a fair question. What do you give yourself to? What do you lean into? I've entitled the message today, Lean Into It. What do, you, what do you lean into as you walk this walk of life? What do you give your heart to? Those things are going to determine the kind of culture that you're building in your life. The truth is this, is that we frame the culture of our own worlds, don't we? The decisions we make, the things that we do, frame the culture of our families, of our life, the trajectory of our life. Culture is not just something that happens to you. We set the culture. So early on when we were first married, we made a series of decisions in our home, how we were going to raise our children, things that we were going to uh, lean into, things that were important to us, and we were going to hold those values really high. The thing with values is if you have core values, core values don't change with outward circumstances. Core values stay the same. That's, what, that's why they're called core values. So we set the culture in our home early on. Back in Paul's day, there was a group of churches in Macedonia 
that Paul took notice of. It was, it was many different churches, and Paul noticed them because they, they demonstrated a particular culture. And he told the churches in Corinth, he said, you guys need to be more like these guys. You guys need to model what, what is happening in Macedonia with these churches. And so I want to read, we're going to look in 2 Corinthians 8. That's where we're going to basically land today. And we're going to hear the word grace mentioned a lot. What I want you to do is I want you to substitute that. Every time we, we read the word grace, I want you to substitute that in your mind for culture. And you'll see what we're talking about, this culture that starts to emerge from this group of churches. Now, we're going to apply that to our own lives in just a minute. But let's start in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 8. It says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. <clears throat> For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. So let me just pause there for a second. How many can identify the culture, uh, if you could name the culture that Paul's pointing out here, what would it be? Generosity, exactly. They're known for their generosity. That was the culture that Paul's pointing out. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. Say that with me. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. And then by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness, and in the love that we've kindled in you, see also that you also excel in this grace of giving. So Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, you guys rock when it comes to your, your teachings. Uh, you guys, you know, your faith, how you talk about it. You guys are hitting it out of the park. But I want you to model what the Macedonian church is doing in, the, in this culture of giving. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We see a culture that Jesus created for us to follow. So this, the Macedonian churches were a group of churches, all separate, that had a particular grace or a culture that they demonstrated that Paul used to describe them. In verse 1, it says, and we want you to know about this culture, this grace that God has given them. It's interesting. They all had different personalities and, you know, different experiences and different levels of maturity, yet there was something that, that they all displayed that Paul said, I want you to have the same thing. And when I think of even the harbor and I think of our two campuses right now, and we're in the near future going to do a third but I think of if you go to Patchogue or you, you, you come to Santa Mariches, you could say different experiences, 
different levels of maturity, a different group, but the same spirit, the same culture. Why? Because we work very hard at creating culture. Culture is not something that simply happens to you. You have to build it. You have to be intentional. And all along the way, there's going to be culture killers that try to come up against it to kill that culture. And yet, there was this single culture or grace that defined them all. You look at verse 6, and Paul says it was this act of grace. What, what is Paul talking about here, this act of grace, this act of culture? And basically, he's saying the Macedonians got it, and that was to give yourself to the people in your world that God has put yourself with. The Macedonians... Um, they had a burden and a passion for those around them that were in need. And they did whatever they could do to meet that need. Look in verse 7. Paul says that you also, to the Corinthian churches, that you excel in this culture or grace of giving. In verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they knew the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came from heaven, emptied himself, became man became human so that we could identify with God. We could, we could touch him. We could see him. We could feel him. We could identify with him. He came and emptied himself from all of his glory, became human, all the confines of, of a physical body and humanity, yet, yet he was God, gave himself for us as a ransom, as an, as an offering. You and I have eternal life because of what Jesus did for us. He displayed this culture of giving. It's this that's called the faith. I'm going to put my hope and my trust in Jesus because of what he did. That's the faith. That's, this, that's the grace that we're talking about here. They all understood that. But it was how this grace or this culture manifested itself among these churches that Paul was referring to. And, and he brings out three quick things here that I love describing them. The first thing is in verse 2. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So you've got churches that are in a very poor area. They have no money. They're, 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 the economy's terrible. Everything looks bad. It's just as bad as it can get. And yet, in the midst of it, they are overflowing with joy. I love that. Sometimes when you're, when you're a follower of Jesus and, and, you're, and, and you're putting your faith and trust in him, sometimes it's in those lean times that you really get a sense of who he is, isn't it? You say, God, I, you're so good. I remember one time when we were church planting and we had no money. And we've, I think I've shared this before, but we were driving home on a Sunday. We had Sunday afternoon church. That's the only time we could get a building. So we're driving home late afternoon, early evening, and the kids wanted pizza for dinner. And I didn't have hardly any money on me. I, ha- I did not have enough to buy a, p- a pizza, a pie. I, had, I didn't have enough. And, and we're like, we'll just go home and eat. And the kids were like, wah, you know. And uh, we were driving down the road, and my wife goes, stop. And we stopped. And I, I thought she was losing her mind. And she said, I think I saw some money in the road. <laughs> You're crazy. She gets out and starts finding money wadded up, blowing across the road. How much did you, 40 bucks? 30 or 40 bucks we ended up with. We went to order a pizza, went home, 
and we taught our kids about God's goodness, and he gave us lunch that day. Now, it stinks for the person who lost the money, but that's another sermon. Um, but it was in the middle of the road. It was in the middle of the, uh, the road. I mean, what do you do? I mean, it was like, okay, God, um, I'd love a new pickup truck. What, what's, what, you know, but it didn't, doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. So, uh, so in the midst of things looking bad around you, there was an overflowing joy. And then um, in verse 3, he says that they, were, that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. Another translation says that they gave willingly, with willing hearts. And so uh, it wasn't something that they were compelled to do by clever language or they were, that they were guilted into it. They, there was something inside of them that they just wanted to be a blessing to others, even when they didn't have enough. And then verse 4 said that they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing. Now, I can see giving, especially when things are lean and you don't have much. I can see you going, oh, I guess it would be the right thing to do. Oh, I guess we should do it. You ever do that? Don't look at me all religious. You know, you do that all the time. Okay. But it's another thing to say, we've got to help someone. There's an urgency to this. When can we do it? See, that's a, that's a whole different ballgame. And that's the kind of excitement that they had. So they had this overflowing joy that defined all of them. Their circumstances were awful. Their economy was terrible. They were in the midst of poverty. And yet they had this culture or grace of overflowing joy that they were known for, that defined who they were. They gave entirely on their own, beyond their ability. They urgently pleaded for an opportunity to give. And this is exactly what this grace or culture should look like. That's what Paul is saying to the churches in Corinth. But none of that is possible without verse 5. And verse 5 says, first of all, that they gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord. And that's where it all begins. None of this is possible unless he's first place in your life. So I want to just share with you a few thoughts about framing the culture of your life based on what we've just read. Just some observations I, I get from these verses. Number one is that outward conditions don't determine your culture. Inward conditions do. has nothing to do with your outward circumstances. You might think it does. Well, I'm just a victim of my culture. No, 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 no. You're the creator of your culture. And it, and, and it, it doesn't change with the blowing wind. It's something that happens deep down inside of you within you. It's when God speaks to you and says, what kind of life do you really want to have? Well, I want this kind of life. Well, then you're going to have to create it. Your culture is either something you allow or you create, no in between. And so I was thinking back when I was uh, working on this, this message, I was thinking back to June of 1988, and my wife was pregnant with our son Scott, who's our Patchogue campus pastor, and she was eight months pregnant, and I had an opportunity to visit Bushwick, Brooklyn, first time ever in New York, coming from Michigan, and there was a minute, some of you were like, ah, you're an idiot. Uh, so uh, back in the late 80s, it was a whole different vibe there. There was a whole lot going on in, in Brooklyn, and especially in Bushwick, and, but there was a ministry there that I'd heard about, and a pastor by the name of Bill Wilson. Now, he's not the same Bill Wilson that started Alcoholics Anonymous, because people were asking me that today, and I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. 
And someone pulled me aside and said, oh, that Bill Wilson, okay. He was a pastor by the name of Bill Wilson, and um, he, had, he had started um, ministering to these kids from one of the toughest areas of the city, and he had over 8,000 children coming in over the course of the weekend. Now, I was a, a new children's pastor, and I had a hard time with 50 church kids keeping them interested. And I thought, I want to see how someone does 8,000 street kids because I can bring back some stuff. So me and another children's pastor drove out to Brooklyn, and I literally thought I was going to die because I remember at a stoplight, and a, and a car passed me on the right on the sidewalk and went through the light, and the guy with me goes, welcome to Brooklyn. I'm like, okay, this is chaos, but it was awesome. And uh, it, was a, it was a cultural shock for me. <clears throat> and so we, we slept in our sleeping bags on the floor of this brewery, old brewery, and, um, and I'll never forget... Um, after the ministry and seeing all these kids and what, what God was doing in these kids' lives, this pastor um, took me for a walk one night about midnight, and it was after dinner, and uh, he, he got very emotional. We were about 20 feet from the front door of the, of the church, which is, it didn't look like a church. It looked like a, an abandoned brewery. And he began to tell me the story that just a few weeks earlier, there was like a 12-year-old little boy that had gone up through his children's ministry program there and had grown in, in, the, in the Lord. He loved Jesus, this little boy. And his brother was a gang member. And one day, the gang member was looking for his brother. They couldn't find the brother. They knew he was the younger brother, and they started to chase him. And he ran through the streets of Bushwick trying to get to the only safe place he knew, and that was his church. And 20 feet from the front door, they gunned this little boy down. And the pastor was telling me that as he, as he held this little boy as he was bleeding out, waiting for the paramedics to come, um, and they were praying with him, and he ended up dying right there on the sidewalk. But the thing that hit me was this, was that he said that after the paramedics, you know, took the boy away to the hospital, and the police were wrapping things up. They did their investigation. He said the firemen came and they hosed the blood off the sidewalk. And he said 15 minutes after they left, you would have never known anything happened on that spot. Life just went on as normal. People walked over that spot having no idea that just an hour before there was a young boy laying there. And that's when in my life culture became something very important. I started to realize that how awesome in the midst of a lot of chaos at that time was there, a, there was a place where a boy that was running for his life knew that if he could just get through those doors, he was going to be okay. I want this place to be like that. I want this to be a place that no matter what you're going through, and sometimes you feel like you're running for your life when you're running from addiction or you're running from something, that you could come into a place like this where it's safe, that you know you're going to be loved on, but you know that people are going to tell you not what you want to hear, but sometimes what you need to hear. And that's when I knew that outward conditions don't determine culture, inward conditions do. We have something to offer people, and that's, that's a relationship with your creator. There's a bunch of us here that are ex-addicts and ex-alcoholics and ex-whatever. There's a lot of exes on, on all of us, right? We, we, we come together. We're good company. We understand each other. But we're not that way anymore. We're new creations in Christ because that's who he says we are, Right? The second thing I want to talk about today is that who you are, not what you say, 
frames the culture of your world. That was true with the Macedonian churches. Paul was encouraging the Corinthian churches to be like them, to create the same culture among themselves. What I love about this story, there's nothing in this story that says that the Macedonian churches were mediocre in any way. They were, they were outstanding. There, there was something special about them because they gave themselves first to the Lord. Let me ask you a question. What kind of marriage are you wanting? What kind of marriage do you want? You want a, you want a marriage that's loving and peaceful and that, that's safe and a place that you can come and, and you know that your, your husband or wife, that, that, that there's, a, there's a communion between you. Is that the kind of marriage you want? Well, then let me tell you this. You have to give yourselves fully to it. What kind of atmosphere do you want in your life? Do you want your life to always be filled with turmoil and toxic relationships and, 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 and frustration and anxiety? Is that the kind of life you want? Or do you want a life of overflowing joy in the midst of all of the garbage and you want peace in your life and you want fulfillment, you want to know that your life has purpose, then you have to give yourself fully to it, to the Lord. What kind of person do you want to be known for? Do you want to be known as someone who's generous and compassionate? You're passionate to wake up every day to live because you know you've got purpose? You're kind? You have to give yourselves fully, fully to the Lord. That's where it comes from. If, as a dad, when my kids were growing up, if I was to say to them, all right, you guys need to follow the rules of my house, and you better obey them, I think that my, what my, I would have more credibility in my family if I am living out what I'm asking them to do instead of telling them what they need to do. It's not what you say as much as who you are and how you're living that out. And the Macedonians were known by who they were, and it manifested itself by what they did. I'm going to have our band come up, and I want to just finish up with one more thought, and I'm going to share something with you. The last thought is this. What you give yourself to, and more importantly, who you give yourself to, will define or determine the culture of your world. I'm talking about your personal culture right now, the culture of your life. Who are you giving yourselves fully to, or what are you giving yourselves fully to? Many of you know my story, and and I'm not going to get into all of that, but when I came to faith in Jesus in 1981, 38 years ago. I came from a family that had a long line of alcoholism through, through my entire family, as far, back as, you could, if, as far back as you could track on both sides. Good people, loving people, but, but alcohol issues. And that caused a lot of damage at times. And my father was, was, a, was a really good man. Some of you know him. He's been here over the years. Really good man. Taught me my core values about being a man. I worked with my, with my father for many years in the plumbing industry, and he taught me always to not only show up on time for work, but get there early. Number two, treat people with respect. 
and always be truthful to them. Never lie to make a sale. You know, you treat people with respect, they'll be loyal to you. He taught me a lot of those principles and values. Well, my dad, we our family was traditionally part of a mainline denomination. It was more tradition, I think, for me it was, than anything. And I was struggling with alcohol, and I was starting to do drugs, and I was struggling with a lot of things and bringing a lot of frustration to my family and friends. And I was introduced to Jesus, and it made sense to me for the first time. And I, like the Macedonians, I fully gave my heart to him. And it, it, it rocked my world because there was such a change in me when I came back among my family and, and close friends, they thought I was doing a new drug because <laughs> I had a smile on my face and I was different. And I wish I could rewind and go back to those days because I had a lot more zeal than I had knowledge. And I backed myself in a corner so many times trying to share what was going on in my life. I couldn't articulate it and I didn't know the scripture enough and I got myself into some pretty crazy situations. You ever been there? I wish I could just tell people, if you, ask, if you accept Jesus, now don't talk for a year. But my father really struggled with it. And to the point where at times, you know, he, when he was drinking, he would make fun of me. And, and he, he struggled. He didn't understand what it was that I was into. In fact, he thought I was in, in, involved in a cult. And it was, for me, it was just Jesus. I, that's all it was. I just, man, I met the person of Jesus and I can't stop talking about him. My life will never be the same again. And so we, we struggled for many years with that. Now, my dad um, would always pray at night. Every night when he went to bed, he would say his prayers for his family. It was something that was ingrained in him since he was a little boy. But he struggled most of his life with a lot of pain. When he was just a little boy, kindergartner, first grade, his, his mother, who never spoke English, she was an immigrant from Poland, on, on her way to drop him off to school, she drops him off at school, and, and from what I have heard on her way back, she dies of a brain aneurysm. And, and my grandfather was an alcoholic, and there was eight or nine kids, and and the older kids had to take care of the younger kids. So there was a lot of pain in my dad's heart. You know, that doesn't sound fair. And then when he was a young man, just out of the army, he marries my mom. And after a few years, my mom ends up having an affair, destroys the marriage. That's a second wound. And so I think alcohol was just a way for him to get through life. He was always there for me. If I called him, he was always there. But it, at times, was a struggle. And um, over the years, I think back of times when he responded to the Lord. I remember taking him and my brother to a Promise Keepers uh, conference at the Pontiac Silverdome back in the mid uh, 90s, and he was thrilled. He raised his hand the first night and said, man, this is awesome. This is good stuff. But then when life got back to normal, I never saw a transformation. Eight years ago, my father came out here and, 
in a service responded and said, man, I, I want to live for Jesus. And, but I didn't, I didn't see a lot of transformation. And eight years ago, my younger brother, my dad had two kids, me and my brother. My younger brother died of an overdose. And that was another layer. A year after that, we found out the need to raise money for Uganda, for Pastor Robert, and we got together and we raised money for a, a solar-powered water filtration system so these kids, these hundreds of kids could have fresh water to drink. My dad got a hold of that and started raising money in his community among business people and raised like four or five grand. And my wife and I bought his plane ticket and we, he was going to come with us and him and I, father and son, were going to put this filtration system in together. And then he had a heart attack and had heart, open heart surgery and he wasn't able to go. In the last seven years, you know, my heart has ached for him because I just, I just see a man that I, I just felt like he's such a good, good man, but just if I could just connect him with his Savior... I think it would mean everything to him. Beginning of the summer, back in May, he started to have health issues and um, was having some, some kidney and bladder issues. And they removed a benign tumor out of his bladder, said he's okay, but he still wasn't okay. And then around the 4th of July, I got the call that one of the technicians at the hospital probably said something they shouldn't, but... We weren't getting any answers, and then the technician said, well, you know, he's filled with cancer, don't you? And we, we got the news kind of like that. So we knew that things were not looking good. So my wife and I drove to Michigan, and for two weeks we were there at the University of Michigan Hospital in Ann Arbor. And then I was in the meeting with the oncologist when, when this young lady said, you you." There's, you're not a candidate for any kind of treatment. You, your cancer has spread through your lymph, lymph nodes and um, it's metast metastasized, whatever that's called. You have a few months to live. That was a heavy day. And uh, my dad was angry. I would say, Dad, you got a lot of people praying for you. And he would just get angry and say, well, it's not doing any good, is it? I'm filled with cancer. I'm dying. You can tell him to stop praying now. He was really angry the first time. I think he was scared. I know he was scared. I went back a few weeks later in August, and at one point my dad said to me, I just wish I had more time. And I said, well, Dad, there's a whole eternity in front of you. And I started talking to him about heaven and what that's going to be like. And as <coughs> much as I could find in Scripture and and after we finished, I talked to him about why we need a Savior. We're, it's not because of what we've done necessarily. It's because of the sin nature that's been passed on to us, how we need a Savior. And Jesus came and gave his life for us. And when we got done, he, he didn't argue with me, but he stared at me and he said these words. He said, well, I know you believe that because you've been trained that way, but how do I know that's true? And I said, I'll never convince you, but God's got to reveal it to you. And I came back to New York with a heavy heart. Just saying, God, I, 38 years I've been praying for his salvation. I've been praying for transformation. And I don't know if he's going to live a week. 
And my prayer is just like, God, I just, I just want to see him come to know you. So a month ago today, um, I, we were, my son and I were supposed to go back on a Monday. And we had, I had a conference I was teaching at on a Saturday. We had both Sunday services here. We had a wedding Sunday night. And we got the call from my stepmom, and she said, hey, things aren't looking good. He, he's, he really took a turn. So I made the arrangements, and I headed out on Saturday morning a month ago this weekend. And as I was driving there, I just kept praying, God, just give me one more chance. This is it. This is it. And as I was driving, I was getting closer to Michigan. I kept getting texts from my cousins and from my mom saying, he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you. After driving 11 hours straight, I got there, and I came in, I hugged my, my mom, my cousins, and I went right into the bedroom. I wasn't there 30 seconds. And I sat on the edge of the bed, and I said, Dad, are you ready to pray? And he said, yes. I said, are you ready to put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus? He said, yes. And him and I prayed, and we prayed a prayer, something like this that was very simple. Jesus, please come into my heart and be my Lord and forgive me of my sin and thank you and we prayed that together and when we said amen I, I, I'd only been in the house about a minute at that point and I said dad let me tell you what I think is going to happen the moment you take your last breath here I believe that when you take your first breath there, you're going to see things that you can't even imagine. You're going to see colors that you've never seen. You're going to hear sounds. You're going to hear music. You're going to, you're going to, things are going to be more brilliant than you've ever imagined. You're going to see loved ones that, that are there. You're going to see Jesus. He's going to come looking for you. And he was just staring at me. And I could tell he was tired. And I said, hey, I'm going to be here for a while. So we'll talk more tomorrow. And I kissed him on his forehead. We went to bed. And I really didn't expect to him make, to make it through the night. The next morning I got up and, and I, as I went downstairs, I went past their room and the bed was made. And I thought, oh gosh, <laughs> what happened? He hadn't, he hadn't left that bedroom in days, a week, two weeks. And I walked out in the living room. He was sitting on the couch. And I'm like, what in the world? He couldn't even walk on his own. And he walked out there, sat down, saw my truck, and said, hey, Mike's here. <laughs> yeah, remember? Oh, yeah. So I had a cup of coffee. I sat down, and we started talking a little bit. And he said, how are you feeling? I've had a few health challenges this year. I started laughing. I said, you think I'm going to tell you how I feel? And he kind of giggled. And My son wanted us to FaceTime. He, they, he wanted the grandkids to see great-grandpa. And so I pulled up the phone. My dad was laying on the couch. I pulled up the phone, and I'm in next to my dad and we're looking at the grandkids and he's pointing at them and and he says I have to go to the restroom so I said Scott I'll call you right back hung up and my stepmom and I helped get him up she helped him into the bathroom and he was so weak he couldn't stand so she just sat him down and she said I really want to go to church because she's been 24 7 taking care of him the last two months and I said go to church you go I got this as I'm standing there watching him after she, she probably wasn't even hardly out of the driveway, I started noticing something wasn't quite right. I just, he didn't look right. So I went in and I sat on the tub next to him and my left hand, I 
put behind his back so he could lean against my hand and my right hand was on his leg just to steady him. And I was like, Dad, are you with me? Are you here? And he was just staring straight ahead. And, and I'm thinking, holy moly, is this going to happen right now? My phone's in the living room. I'm here by myself right now. And so I started to pray out loud, Jesus, please let him see you and sense you and that you're here. And You know, I just started praying out loud. And then I'd stop and I'd say, Dad, Jesus is here. He's here. Go. And he started to breathe like gasping for air. And then he, he, he took his last breath. And I thought, wow. And you know how they always say, now I don't know for sure if this is true, but they always say when you hear the stories that they look down and see their body. I don't know if that happens or not. But I always read that. So I just thought, well, just in case, I looked up and I said, you go. And I looked back. And he just went, and he leaned against my shoulder. I couldn't believe it. I was so honored. It was me and him. And I picked him up, and I carried him out into the living room and laid him on the couch and made him look comfortable. And for about a half hour before anyone knew, I, I called my wife first. But I sat down and read my Bible and thanked God for his faithfulness. You see, through the years, there was a culture, there was a spiritual culture that we created in our family and there were a lot of culture killers through the years that tried to come against that. But in the end, it was that culture that he was attracted to. And I'm so honored that God used me to lead my father to the Lord. And I believe with all my heart that's what happened. So I want to encourage you today. You might be here. You might be with us today. Maybe you visited once or twice, or this is your first time, whatever. Just like the Macedonian churches, it all begins with giving your heart to Jesus first. And it changes the trajectory of your family, of your life, of your descendants. When you follow after Jesus, he takes you places you never thought possible. You, he, he gives you purpose in your life that you never sensed before because you're living for a kingdom that's bigger than yourself. You're living for a kingdom that's different than the kingdom of the world. It's totally opposite of the kingdom of the world, in fact. And I'm just so grateful for the faithfulness of God that the culture that we have created in our lives, the, the spiritual culture of Jesus being in the center, has been like a magnet, and all of our family has connected and reached out to us because this is the reality. You can live any way you want. God gives you that freedom. But when the chips are down and your back's against the wall and you're going to die or you're, you've got an illness or you just had a loss, you need something bigger than yourself. And even when people say, I don't believe in God, well, then why are you so ticked off at a God you don't believe in? We need something or someone bigger than ourselves. And I'm just so grateful for the faithfulness of God. Could we stand? And our band's going to just lead us in a closing song, and we're going to wrap it up. But 
can I just ask you today, maybe you're here, maybe it's just a, a, a prayer again, or maybe it's the first time you say, man, I just want to give myself first to Jesus today. I, I just, I want him to be first place in my life. Can you just raise your hand if that's you? Say, I want him to be number one in my life again, or today is the first time. Lord, whatever it takes, forgive me and come into my life and be Lord of my life. Father, we just thank you, God, for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, God, that you are a God that answers prayer and that even a lifetime can go by with us searching, God, and you never give up on us. You are relentless in your love. You're relentless in pursuing us because you have a marvelous plan and purpose for each of us, God. We were created that way. So today, Lord, I just thank you for those that are just with open hearts and open minds saying, God, reveal yourself to me. Come into my life and change me. Transform me. Lord, I know that you're faithful. And we're so grateful for that spiritual culture that you cultivate in each of us, God. I wouldn't want to do life without it. Not one day. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' marvelous name. And everyone said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you would like to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus today, visit us online at www.theharborli.com backslash next step.